have really missed that. That is just, it's fun to sing with y'all. So thank you so much. It's an encouragement. Uh, thank you guys for leading us too. Uh, hey, welcome to Grace Bible Church. Uh, if you are new in the last couple of weeks, my name is West, and I'm a pastor on staff here and really excited to be back preaching. Uh, so before I begin preaching, though, I do have one announcement, and, and you might have heard this last week. Daniel, I think, mentioned it, but we have some needs in our children's ministry, uh, and here's how we think about this. First of all, we've got a bunch of kids who need to be trained up in the Lord, discipled uh, toward maturity, and, and so we have an opportunity as a church, but we don't have, right now, enough volunteers, and so what we're doing is we're praying that God would raise up workers in the field, just like the Bible commands us to, but furthermore, and, and this is something that I hope you will appreciate, uh, we believe that God is sovereign, and he's given us all these kids to disciple. We know he wants us to train them up and to disciple them, and, and so we believe that if he's given us these kids to disciple, he has, within Grace Bible Church, also um, brought people who should be volunteering in this area, and, and we don't have them yet, and, and I, I'm not sure why. But, uh, but regardless, what we're asking you to do is we're asking you to pray about it. And, and if in prayer you just go, look, that's just not for me, great, we don't want you. Uh, like we want you to do, because we want you to do other great ministry according to your gifts. Like that is, you got total freedom there. But if you haven't prayed about it, you might be the worker in the field that, that God is raising up. And, and we, we just ask you to take that one step. So there are going to be people out in the foyer who would love to answer any questions for you about what a commitment in our children's ministry looks like um, right after the service. And so if you have questions, ask them. But, but we just ask everyone to at least pray about it, okay? Um, thank you all very much. We will turn our attention to God's word, Luke 19. Let me pray for us real quickly before we dive in. Father, it is a joy um, it's a joy to know you and to be known by you. It is a joy to celebrate that with our, our church community here. I pray, God, that we would be people who are overwhelmed by your great grace. I pray, God, that you would do something in us to help us to more fully understand your grace and to appreciate it, and mostly just to live in response to it and, and empowered by it. And so, Help us, God, by your spirit and by your word to be transformed today. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I said, our, our text today is Luke 19, verses 1 through 10. And how many of you came to Thursday night Bible study this past week? Raise your hands real high. Okay, so a lot of you might be kind of embarrassed for me right now because you're thinking to yourself, West has been on this couple's kayak trip in North Carolina, and he doesn't realize that Kevin Stephanie preached on this same passage three days ago at Grace Bible Church, and like, this is embarrassing. Or, maybe even worse, you've thought West has some sort of power play deal, and, and he thinks this is like the first annual GBC preach-off, and it's, it's me versus Kevin Stephanie or something. And let me tell you, I listened to Kevin Stephanie's sermon. The last thing I want is a preach-off with that guy. He did an incredible job. He just totally crushed it. I heard his practice round, which was like his rough draft, and I promise you right now, without a doubt, his rough draft was better than my finished work. So there's no preach-off here, I promise you. That would be bad for my job security. Um, here's the deal. 
he did a great job, and he did kind of a general exposition of this passage. And, and like I said, thought he knocked it out of the park, applied it really well, all that. I'm going to try to do something that is complementary in the same passage. I'm going to hopefully be faithful to the passage, but I'm going to preach the passage with a specific eye toward God's grace in this passage and actually how his grace permeates all aspects of this text. And so I have a more narrow focus than Kevin did, and, and hopefully you'll see if you were here on Thursday how, how they're complementary and not competitive. But we're going to dive into the text now, and I, I just want to ask this question of you as we read this familiar text. Where do you see God's grace in Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10? Where do you see God's grace as we read Luke 19, verses 1 through 10? He, Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and he was rich. He and he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him. For he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received Jesus joyfully. And when they saw it, they grumbled. They all grumbled. He had gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So where did you see God's grace in this text? I, I think if you're like me, the, the most obvious example of God's grace is found in verse 5. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. That to me screams grace. Look, we all know who Zacchaeus is. Zacchaeus is a government-empowered crook. Jericho is like this super wealthy trade center, and Zacchaeus has become rich by shaking down the citizens of Jericho using the might of Rome as his enforcer. So he's a bad guy. Like, he's a really bad guy. He's, he's basically just scamming money off of people, and they can't do anything about it. In fact, in verse 8, Zacchaeus says, if I have defrauded anyone. Now, we know if you were here on Thursday that the if I defrauded anyone is a first-class conditional clause, which basically means since I have defrauded everyone. Like, it's assumed to be true since I have defrauded anyone. But I want to do a little bit of a deep dive into this word defrauded. It's a Greek word, sukofanteo. Sukofanteo. It's really, really interesting. Sukofanteo. Sukon means fig. Like a fig tree. Fig. Sukon means fig, and fanteo means to declare. So sukofanteo literally means like fig declarer or fig informer, and, and that, that's hard to get from fig declarer or fig informer 
to defraud it. And, and so I just want to explain to you how this word developed. It doesn't really have much to do with the sermon, but I think it's fascinating. And, and so I'm, I'm going to give you this for free, okay? You, you get this free. Sukofonteo, fig informer, in Athens sometime before this was written, but also obviously because it's Athens in Greek, there was there was a drought, a big drought, and so there was a, a bad crop of figs. And so the people of Athens and Attica, which is the province that Athens is in, had, had this very limited supply of figs. And, and figs a staple in, in Athens, in Attica. And so the government of Athens said, we're going we're gonna to invoke this law. We're going to create this law. Nobody can export figs because of this drought. So no exportation of figs to around the world. Athens came, was, was known for their figs, and people could make good money on it. But if they exported the figs, people would die in Athens. And so the government rightly said, we're not exporting any figs. But then the drought ended. And a couple of years later, there's an abundance of figs again. And so people, despite the fact that the law was still on the books, started exporting figs. And and nobody really cared, except some people used it to their political advantage. People who had enemies would see their enemies exporting figs, and they said, that law still exists. It shouldn't exist, but it does still exist. I'm going to invoke that law, and I'm going to have my enemies arrested. And, And so... Suko Fonteo came to mean to falsely accuse or to extort by false accusation. And that is what Zacchaeus has been doing to get rich. He has been extorting people by false accusation. He has been trumping up like taxes and, and creating like false situations such that people will, would have to pay more taxes. And, and that's how the wee little man got rich. All that says, Zacchaeus is a terrible guy. Like, he's, he's a really bad guy, right? And nobody wants to hang out with Zacchaeus. And, and here's why I say all of that. We think that grace is Jesus tolerating a guy like this. Like, that's what we think. And we apply that to Zacchaeus, and we apply it to us, too. We think, you know what? God is gracious, therefore he's going to let us into heaven. But in the back of our minds, we kind of go, begrudgingly, begrudgingly, because he's a bad guy. And nobody really wants to hang out with a bad guy, but kind of grace obligates us to hang out with bad guys, even though we don't really want to hang out with bad guys. And that's not what this passage says. That we need to repent of that thought, that that God has loved us begrudgingly because we're still sinners. Because the text actually says that Jesus pursues a guy like this, and the fact that Jesus pursues a guy who has been defrauding innocent people and says, I must have dinner with you, that challenges my understanding of what grace is. So much so that I'm not sure I really get it. And that's hard to say because I've been a preacher for like 25 years and you're trying to listen to me assuming that I get it. And what I'm saying is, I don't know that I totally get it. And I'm certain that you don't totally get it either. I just don't think we get it. I don't think we in our finite minds have wrapped our, our own minds around the infiniteness of God's grace, the totality of God's grace. I, let me try to apply this. I want you to think of the worst and most depraved sin that you have ever engaged in. 
Now, I know a lot of guys here are thinking about something related to sexual sin or pornography. Maybe some of you girls are too. It could be that. It could be something else, but, but something that is habitual and, and something that when you engage in it, you get really frustrated with yourself and you question whether God loves you in that moment. You've, you've got that sin in your mind. Now, when you are in that place, have you ever considered the fact that Jesus would walk by you and go, Tim, Sarah, Beth, Jennifer, I have to have dinner with you tonight. Like, there is nothing else in the world. I don't care how many godly people there are in your town or in Jericho or any place else. All I want to do is spend time with you tonight. I've had a speaking gig. I've got these extra loaves and fishes. I'm bringing them over, but we are hanging out tonight. Have you ever in your wildest imaginations thought of God loving you in the darkness of your soul in such a prolific way, then you haven't fully embraced the grace of God. Because that's exactly what this passage is talking about. Grace, historically and most succinctly defined, is unmerited favor. Unmerited favor. You've probably heard that enough. Have you, have you reflected on what unmerited favor means? It means that you did nothing to warrant or obligate God's love for you. God loves you profoundly, not based in what you have done. That's what unmerited means. But based in who he is, he extends favor, affection, love for you. That is what grace is. It is unmerited favor. Psalm 30, verse 5 says, For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Ephesians chapter 4, sorry, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. Just let the beauty of these words roll over your soul. But God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming age, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us, in Christ Jesus. For by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which, he, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is actually beautiful. If, if I had to summarize it, it's still really important. Grace is equally infinite parts love, mercy, and forgiveness. But it goes on beyond that. It says grace overcomes our depravity. While we were yet sinners, it overcomes our depravity to bring us to a place of perfect security. We are seated at the right hand of God. There's no more work to do. That's why it says we're seated with Christ in the heavenly realm. We are seated. We are in a place of perfect security before a perfectly holy God. 
do you think of yourself as that secure? Because if you don't, you haven't fully understood the grace of God. I'm not saying you don't believe in the grace of God. I'm just saying you haven't fully embraced the totality of of God's grace. And that's me too. But we were dead in our transgressions and sins, our trespasses and sins. And, And God, because of his mercy, his love, his forgiveness, has put in us a place of absolute security. This grace is the bedrock of joy. Like, like it, is, it is what gives us joy before God. It's grace. And I know we understand it, at least in part conceptually, but have we let it permeate our souls such that it evokes a passionate, joyful response to God. Like if you're sitting here going, oh, this is just a sermon about a doctrine, you don't know the doctrine. Like this demands response from the heart, not just from the mind. We cannot passively react to this truth. If you are passive, you're misunderstanding the truth. This is the grace of God. But let me go on and say, if we limited grace to what we see in verse 5, where where Jesus pursued us in our sin, we would fall woefully short in appreciating the fullness of grace as it applies to our salvation. Look at verses 3 and 4. This is speaking of Zacchaeus. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was a wee little man. So... He ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. I'd like to submit to you today that you see as much grace in verses 3 and 4 as you do in verse 5. And and, and let me explain how I get there. What would make a sinner like Zacchaeus seek Jesus? I want you to think about that. What would make a sinner like Zacchaeus seek Jesus? Zacchaeus is a sinner. He is ceremonially unclean. He can't worship at the temple. Like, he's a bad dude. He's been defrauding people, and he's known for defrauding people. He is a bad guy. The last person, a guy like Zacchaeus, or you or me should then seek is the righteous judge of the universe, Jesus. Like, this should not happen. This is foolishness. The the Bible says that this shouldn't happen. Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12, there is no one righteous, there is no one who understands, there is no one who seeks after God. Together they have all turned away and have been made worthless. Rust. No one righteous, no one who understands, no one who seeks God, all have turned away. Rust. That's how you remember it. That's how I remember it. You don't have to remember it. But it's it's true. There is no one who seeks after God. Now, you might ask, well, I I wonder why that is so. You you might be going, I don't know that I believe that. But if, if you're a little bit more objective, you'd go, I wonder why God made it so. Well, here's why? Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, which if you've been listening, is the three verses right before that beautiful verse in Ephesians that I just read. 
So Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, this is talking about all people before the grace of God starts working on them. And it says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like all of mankind. Not like the worst people in mankind, but like all of mankind. So we were dead in our transgressions and sins. We were followers of Satan, not Jesus. Why wouldn't Zacchaeus seek Jesus? The answer is because he's too busy seeking Satan. According to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Now You might say, but wait a second, West. Hang on. You're only preaching one side of the scriptures. Doesn't the Bible say whosoever wills may come? That's a very loose summation of a biblical truth, and it is a truth. So I'm with you there. It's just not a quotation. But it's a biblical truth. Whosoever wills may absolutely come. But where does the wills come from? It doesn't come from us. There's no one righteous, no one who understands, no one who seeks after God. All have turned away. Together they have become worthless. So if the wills, whosoever wills, if the wills in us doesn't come from within us, where does it come from? The answer is from God. Specifically, from grace. That's ultimately why verses 3 and 4 are evidence of God's grace. The fact that Zacchaeus runs ahead because he wants to see Jesus. The fact that Zacchaeus runs ahead and then finds a sycamore tree to climb up in so he can get a look at Jesus. This doesn't come from Zacchaeus. This comes from the grace of God. I'll go a step further. I'll say that the fact that Zacchaeus is a wee little man, he's under five foot tall, and he can't see Jesus. I bet he hated that all of his life, But in reality, that is God's grace to make him short so he can't see from a distance Jesus so that he'd have to run ahead, so that he'd have to climb a tree, so ultimately Jesus could look up and go, Zacchaeus, come on down from there. We must have dinner. I think the whole kit and caboodle is about the grace of God. There is nothing about Zacchaeus seeking after Jesus that happens apart from the grace of God. And so I think the grace of God is more prolific and more impactful than you have ever imagined it to be. I I really think we have more to thank God for on the topic of grace than we have possibly imagined. Look at verse 6 with me. So Zacchaeus hurried and came down. He scurried down the sycamore tree and he received Jesus joyfully. Sinners don't receive Jesus joyfully. That, that's a truth. Sinners avoid eye contact with Jesus. My mom, before she was a Christian and right after I was a Christian, and so she used to always call me a little religious creepo. It was, if you know my mom, a term of endearment. You need to trust me on that. She went to Cabo for a, some sort of vacation. She came back with a t-shirt for me that said, Jesus is coming, everyone look busy. That is great theology. 
That is absolutely what non-Christians do when they believe that Jesus is coming. Zacchaeus instead runs ahead, climbs up a tree, and then when Jesus calls him out by name, which is a little bit spooky, he scurries down the tree and he receives Jesus joyfully. And I promise you, my friend, that happens by grace and grace alone. It does not happen apart from God's grace. The fact that Zacchaeus makes eye contact with Jesus is an evidence of God's amazing grace. Look at verse 7 with me. If I can find it, there it is. And when they saw it, that Jesus was pursuing Zacchaeus, they all grumbled, he has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Jesus' extension of grace annoys the crowd. Jesus is so passionately pursuing a sinner that it makes religious people uncomfortable. It annoys them. It bugs them. Have you extended grace in this world such that you have annoyed religious people? If you haven't, maybe we haven't fully embraced God's grace. I, I think a lot of times pastors get this wrong. A lot of times pastors, because they want to grow their churches, they, they tell their people to do evangelism. Do evangelism. It's your duty. And they wonder why people don't do evangelism. Maybe, based on this passage and, and several others, maybe we should just extol the glories of God's grace, that, that the people of God would understand the immensity of God's grace and then just turn them loose on the world. Maybe evangelism isn't as much duty as it is a response to God's grace, and we want the people we love to understand the grace of God because it has so transformed our lives. It has given us such security. Maybe grace is actually the doctrine that makes us active in sharing our faith in Jesus. And how passionate are you about the lost? Maybe the answer to that is as passionate as you are about God's grace. Now let's look at how God's grace actually impacted Zacchaeus in the aftermath of his profession of faith. Verse 8, And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, which as we said means since I have defrauded many of most, I restore it fourfold. No matter how you slice verse 8, and commentators slice it a number of different ways. I read a bunch of different commentaries. Zacchaeus voluntarily and cheerfully gives more than the law required. The law required that if someone defrauded somebody, he had to give back a certain amount. But, but even if you, you do that, and, and even if you said that law of fourfold applies to everything, which it doesn't, Zacchaeus applies it to everything, and Zacchaeus says, in addition, by the way, I'll give half of everything I have. And it doesn't even seem to be given in a begrudging manner. Like, this is not something he's like, oh, do I have to? Golly, this, I guess this is what obedience looks like. This, this really stinks. None of that. 
He joyfully slides down the tree, and he's like, oh, I'm going to give half of everything I have, and if I've defrauded anyone, and I have defrauded people, I'm going to give them back fourfold. Like He seems delighted in verse 8 to do this. What, is that, what does grace produce in Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus was a selfish consumer. He would defraud people for his own gain. Now he is a joyful giver. And just so you'll know, this isn't going to be a tithing sermon that that I backed into here. I'm not talking about a joyful giver to Grace Bible Church. I'm talking about a joyful giver to community, to the people you live around. I'm talking about joyfully giving to the people out there, not the church in here. That. My point is, Zacchaeus says, I live in Jericho. I am going to delight in giving to Jericho. I have been a consumer, a taker, and now I will be a giver. What you're seeing here is transformational grace working its way into a believer's life. A man dedicated to injustice now becomes a man who goes beyond justice because justice would have said he had to give this much back, and he says, I'm delighted to give more. He goes beyond justice to charity. To charity. Do you know what? The word grace in Greek is? It's charis. That's where we get the word charity. What, what is Charity. Charity is when you see somebody on the street corner and they haven't done a thing for you. They, you don't know them. But they're saying, can you help me? And you're not obligated to help them. But you're compelled because the grace of God has been poured out into you and in that moment, you're like, God had mercy on me. I'll have mercy on this person. And you help them. Not because you have to. Not even because you ought to. But because you want to. That's charity. That's grace. It's, it's the same word. Charis. Grace. Charity. Grace helps us go beyond justice charity have you understood grace do you have a heart that is charitable not to people you want to love you but to people who will never be able to repay you and who have never done anything to obligate your affection are you charitable nonetheless have you understood grace Look at verses 9 and 10. I love them because they're, they're kind of a little summary statement. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Salvation has come to Zacchaeus' house because Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. Let's review, can we? It is by God's grace that Zacchaeus climbs a tree. That's, that's God's grace. It is by grace that Jesus pursues Zacchaeus even though he knows who Zacchaeus is. That's, 
That's grace. It is grace that makes Zacchaeus joyful when he slithers down the sycamore tree and joyfully receives Jesus. That is grace. And it is grace that transforms Zacchaeus from a taker to a giver. Have you understood God's grace? Have you been empowered and transformed by God's grace in all of these ways? Have you really let it permeate your soul and dictate your life. Remember, grace is a communicable attribute. We're talking about the attributes of God. The first half of the summer was the incommunicable attributes of God. Those are things that we appreciate about God, but that we cannot do ourselves. Things like sovereignty, things like omniscience, all of these kinds of attributes, great things to appreciate about God, will never be sovereign or omniscient. But now we've moved into the part of the summer where we talk about the communicable attributes of God. Those are the attributes of God that we can reflect or glorify him in because he has given us the ability to do so. The grace of God enables us to reflect in our actions. We we can reflect God's grace in how we live. We communicate it when we seek justice for others instead of just selfishly worrying about how we're doing when we look for other people and try to protect and even be charitable toward other people we we reflect God's grace when we extend forgiveness and mercy because we have received forgiveness and mercy we reflect God's grace when we go beyond justice and are charitable in our community like we, we, are, we are so impacted by God's grace to us that, that grace then, that, then we become a conduit of God's grace. That's what God intends. In the 1850s, there was a young British man who heard about the gold rushes in California and he decided to go over and, and try to strike it rich by mining for gold. And it, he came over and he worked hard in the minefields and it took a long time, but finally he struck it rich and, and big rich. And so he had, he had made his fortune even as a young man and he decided he was going to go back to England. But before he went back to England, now a wealthy man, he was going to see the, the mighty Mississippi River and take it down to New Orleans because he had heard so much about this great city of New Orleans and, and how it was growing and, and expanding as kind of the doorway to the western United States. And so he, he arrives in New Orleans, he's a wealthy man, but he, he's still wearing miner's garb. He, he looks a bit of a mess, but he's walking around the streets of New Orleans, taking in the sights, and he comes upon a large crowd, and as he, he gets to the back of the crowd, he realizes to his horror that the crowd is gathered for slave auction. And he's uncomfortable because he's from Great Britain, and in Great Britain, slavery had been totally outlawed since 1833, so he had really grown up without slavery. He, he just hadn't seen much of it. And so right as he approaches the back of this crowd, a, a middle-aged African man is pushed off the platform because the gavalier had said sold, and they had shoved him to the new owner, and off this guy had gone. But in his absence, they'd thrown up a, a young African woman. And the the bidding for this woman starts, and normally women, because they couldn't work as hard, would, would bring less money, but, but this woman was beautiful. And, and so the bidding was very active. And it, it went up to and, and actually passed that which would be normally reserved for uh, the price of a man. 
And it came down to two men who were bidding for this young African woman. And in between bids, as the auctioneer would go through his auctioning verbiage, whatever that's called, these two men would would yell to each other about the illicit things that they were going to do to this woman if, if they won the auction. And this young British man standing in the back is just horrified by the whole thing, as he should be. And finally, the auctioneer gets the two men to a bid that will be unmatched. And he says, going once, going twice, and right before he lowers his gavel, the young British man from the back says a price that he is willing to pay that is exactly double what had previously been offered. And the crowd laughs because they turn around and they see this young man who's in mining clothing, and they're like, this is some sort of joke. But the young man breaks through the crowd, pulls out a bag of gold, and he has plenty. The auctioneer takes the money. Nobody's obviously going to match this price. It's a ridiculous price for that time. Lowers his gavel, says sold. And as the young lady walks down the steps from the platform and she gets eye level to our, to our British friend, she spits in his face. She says, I hate you. He wipes the spittle off his face and without saying a word or doing anything to retaliate, he's, he gently grabs her by the hand and walks her through the crowd that is mocking him. And they walk silently up and down the streets of New Orleans. She has no idea He seems lost. Finally, he stops outside of a storefront. She can't read. She doesn't know what the storefront is, but he gently places her on the curb and says, please wait here. He walks in, and as she looks through the window, she sees the British boy arguing with an older man, and she's confused. Finally, the older man goes into a back room, comes out with a piece of paper. They both sign the paper, and the young Brit walks out, extends his hand with the paper and says, these are for you. They are papers that say you are free. Of course, the young lady's been traumatized by the whole experience of being captured from her home in Africa all the way to being sold as a slave. And so she thinks he is mocking her. And she says, I hate you, second time. And he says, no, no, these papers... They, they say you're free. I, I bought you, and then I bought your freedom. And finally, the glorious truth of this message starts to sink in, and she dares to believe it. And she says, you, you bought me to set me free? And then with more conviction, you bought me to set me free. And then she finally says, you bought me to set me free, and all I want to do is to serve you. That is what grace has done for us. God bought us at the ultimate expense of his son's life. And he did not buy us to keep us as we were. He bought us and set us free. And our response to both of those truths that are of grace should be, and all I want by the empowerment of your grace, is to serve you. You can say serve if you want. Here's another way of looking at it. You can say that God's grace has impacted you, and and instead of just saying, I want to serve God, what you can say is, I want to reflect God. 
I, I want to take the grace that has been poured upon me and I want to extend it to other people in my community. That's what it means to serve God. All we're really doing is reflecting in some little way what we have enjoyed in the ultimate way by the grace of God. He gives us grace, he empowers us by grace, and he says, live graciously. Have we really understood the grace of God? Let's pray. Father, help us. Help us, God, to be men and women who are so taken by grace, so so enamored by the truth of Scripture as it teaches of your grace that, that our lives would be utterly changed, that, that, we would, that we would be rooted in security before you, the righteous and perfect God, and that we would be perfectly at peace in nearness to you so that we might live courageously and that we might extend the grace that we have received to other people. Father, I pray that we at Grace Bible Church, that all Christians, all places, would, would reflect your grace, your, your amazing grace, not just in our songs, although that is important as well, but in our lives, Father. May we proclaim your grace in our lives and with our tongues. May our lives be testament to the truth of grace. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.